Explicit content is found in this episode, so listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to the True Crime Fan Club Podcast. I'm your host, Lainey. Romance scams or lonely heart scams are one of the oldest swindles in the book. They work when a fraudster gains the affection of a victim, usually in a long-distance relationship. Once the scammer establishes trust, they will request money or financial information from their victim. The advent of the internet and dating sites has made lonely heart scams more popular and harmful than ever. Glinda Sue Sam, an 81-year-old resident of Kirkwood, Missouri, began as a victim of a lonely heart scam, but ended up a scammer herself. In early 2014, Glinda began an online relationship with a man who called himself Wilson. He claimed to be a United States citizen living in Nigeria for business purposes. Glinda never saw or spoke to Wilson. They only exchanged text messages. Despite that, Glinda sent Wilson money for numerous years. Wilson needed it for taxes and fees, but his main objective was to pay penalties to the Nigerian government. Once the government was paid, Wilson could join Glinda in the U.S. At first, Glinda sent Wilson money from her Social Security retirement benefits and pension, but it wasn't enough. So, Wilson would send her electronics in the mail. He instructed Glinda to pawn the electronics and send the funds to him. This was the beginning of Glinda becoming the scammer's money mule. According to the U.S. Department of Justice, a money mule is a person who receives fraudulently obtained money and merchandise on behalf of a scammer and gives the profits to the scammer. Glinda proceeded to participate as Wilson's money mule in other ways. She received wire transfers of money from unknown sources, deposited counterfeit and fraudulently obtained checks into her bank accounts, accepted unemployment insurance benefit payments from unknown people, and so much more. Glinda says that since 2015, bank employees, local police officers, and federal agents warned her that her online boyfriend was actually a scammer. Glinda ignored them. Over seven years, from 2014 to 2021, Glinda attempted to conduct fraudulent transactions of up to $1.5 million. In November 2021, Glinda pleaded guilty to two felony counts of identity theft. Four months later, in February 2022, Glinda was sentenced to five years probation and must repay her victims $32,454,000. Four months later, in February 2022, Glinda was sentenced to five years probation and must repay her victims $32,454. The recommended sentence is a minimum of four years in prison, but the judge determined Glinda's age and remorse were important factors in giving a lesser sentence. Glinda openly expresses that the love of her life tricked her at the cost of many others. She told the judge that she was so ashamed, embarrassed, and sorry for her actions. To demonstrate her willingness to make amends, Glinda has starred in the FBI's two-minute public service announcement warning others against the dangers of a romance scam. Glinda was fooled by a lonely heart scam, but she's not the only person to make poor decisions under the premise of love. Before the internet, scammers still fabricated false relationships to prey on lonely victims. 
perhaps the most iconic instance of a grand-scale Lonely Heart scam, was perpetrated in the early 1970s to late 1980s by Crooksy McCord Nix Jr. of the Dixie Mafia. But the victims of Nix's scams lost more than money. Two unknowing participants lost their lives. Through a complex web of lies and a brigade of greedy, immoral people, this Lonely Heart scam would end in the cold-blooded murders of Judge Vincent Sherry and his wife, Margaret Sherry. Okay, on to the show. Vincent Jerome Sherry Jr. was born on February 10, 1929, in Kings, New York, though he mostly grew up in Paducah, Kentucky. He was raised by his parents, Vincent Sr. and Cleo. By all accounts, Vincent was a smart man. He attended the University of Southern Mississippi, where he received his Ph.D. Later, Vincent pursued law at George Washington University, where he received a Bachelor of Laws degree, which is the equivalent of today's Juris Doctor. He was a member of two different honor fraternities. The Clarion Ledger describes him as a master of language, who often tripped his friends' own vocabularies by throwing out a word they had to look up later. Peter Halott, Vincent's future law partner, said he was an intelligent man whose knowledge of the law and the U.S. Constitution sometimes astounded him. Margaret Joy Smith, Vincent's future wife, was born on July 10, 1929, in Mooring Sports, Louisiana, to parents Bernie and Ruby. She spent most of her early years in Bowling Green, Kentucky. Like Vincent, she was a brilliant woman. As an adult, Margaret attended Western Kentucky University. Throughout her life, Margaret would be an active political advocate for the Republican Party in Mississippi. In 1981, she became a Biloxi City Councilwoman. In 1985, Margaret ran for mayor of Biloxi. She lost, but not by much. That's noteworthy for a female politician in the Deep South in the mid-1980s. Additionally, she was a District No. 5 representative to the Harris County Republican Executive Committee and the Publicity Director of the Board of Directors of Mississippi Women in Municipal Government. Margaret was an ambitious and influential woman. On November 22, 1950, Vincent and Margaret married. They were both 21 years old. Together, they made a dynamic couple. Vincent and Margaret would have four children, two girls and two boys, Eric, Vincent III, Lynn, and Leslie. They were known as avid sports fans, especially of the Atlanta Braves and the Mississippi Coast Jets, a minor league basketball team. At the time of their murder, they had two long-haired dachshunds, Fritz and Moe, and six grandchildren. On November 10, 1951, one year after his marriage to Margaret, Vincent enlisted in the Air Force. During his time in the military, he'd spent seven years as an intelligence officer and 13 years as a judge advocate. Twenty years after joining the Air Force, Vincent retired from the military as a colonel. Vincent gained his license to practice law in Virginia, Kentucky, and Mississippi. In addition to practicing law, Vincent taught political science and criminal justice courses at the University of Southern Mississippi for eight years. 
1981, now 52-year-old Vincent started a defense law firm with a fellow lawyer, 39-year-old Peter Halott. The two lawyers made a lot of money defending rich criminals, including members of the Dixie Mafia, like strip club owner Mike Gillich. He'll become important later. Mississippi Governor Bill Elaine appointed Vincent as interim Second Circuit Court District Judge on July 18, 1986. This promotion from lawyer to judge was a watershed moment for Vincent. Governor Elaine demonstrated the utmost confidence in Vincent's ability as a circuit court judge. Later, Vincent would prove to be good at this job. He was described by Halad as a compassionate judge who often received letters of thanks from those he sentenced to prison. Halad said Vincent always explained to them why he was sending them to prison. The previous circuit court judge Vincent replaced had been appointed to the Mississippi Supreme Court. Potentially, Vincent's career may have also led to the Mississippi Supreme Court had he not been murdered. On September 16, 1987, Halat had been trying to reach Vincent since 9 a.m. Vincent was supposed to be in court that morning. When Vincent didn't show up, a court administrator called Halat. Halat and one of his associates went to the Sherry house around 11 a.m. and found the door unlocked. Halat went in the door immediately came back out and said both Vincent and Margaret were dead. Halat proceeded to call 911. Later, it would appear odd that Halat had known both Sherry's were dead so quickly. Halat had barely walked through the front door. While Vincent's body was visible from the doorway, Margaret's body was located in the bedroom, out of sight. Vincent and Margaret had been shot at point-blank range in their heads, with a 22 caliber gun. Vincent was shot three times, and Margaret was shot four times. Later, police chief Tommy Moffat said, the person who did the shooting went for very deliberate places, very critical places. When police went to the house, they found that one of the Sherry's dachshunds was protecting Vincent's body. The dog wouldn't allow police to get near Vincent, whose body was located in the den. Margaret's body was found in the bedroom. She was between the bed and the dresser, leaning against the bed in a sitting position. It appeared Margaret had been getting undressed for bed when she was shot. When police tried to get near Margaret, the dog stood between police and her body. The dogs were not harmed during the murders or police searches. The autopsy indicated that Vincent and Margaret were murdered on September 14th between 7 p.m. and midnight. Their bodies were not discovered until September 16th because the Sherrys had intended to visit their daughter Leslie in Baton Rouge on September 15th. While the couple never made it to Baton Rouge, their co-workers didn't expect them at work, so no one raised the alarm. The murder of a judge is big news. Multiple departments helped search the crime scene, including the FBI, Mississippi Highway Patrol, Harrison County Sheriff's Department, and the Biloxi Police Department. Police found the front door of the Sherry house unlocked and the back door bolted. They believe that whoever killed the Sherrys entered through the front door. The Sherrys rarely lock their front door, often keeping it cracked so their dogs could go in and outside as they pleased. Through interviews, police found that the Sherrys were trusting folks. They'd yell, come in, before knowing who was at the door. Immediately, law enforcement suspected professional killers murdered the Sherrys. 
The signs were clear. Nothing was missing from the house, and there was no sign of a forced entry. The couple hadn't been assaulted. Ballistics tests proved that one gun was used, but that gun was not located. There were nine shell casings inside the Sherry house, seven for the bodies and two for shots to the bedroom wall. They believed Vincent was shot first while facing his attacker. Then Margaret was shot from the side at an angle above her. Another clue to support that someone had hired a professional to murder the Sherrys was that they found foam residue on both Vincent and Margaret's bodies. This led police to believe a foam pillow had been used as an ad hoc silencer to muffle the shots. No pillow was missing from the house, so the perpetrator must have brought their own. Later, police would reveal that there was one item missing from the Sherry home, an appointment book. They did not disclose this information to the public in the hopes that they could tie someone to the murder scene because only the killer would have that information. Across the street from the Sherry's home was a golf course. In hopes of finding evidence, the police searched the course but found nothing. Police wondered if a criminal Vincent had sentenced was seeking revenge. In an effort to find the killer's motive, the police looked through all of Vincent's old case files, even from when he was a defense attorney. Some people told the police that Vincent had received threats since he started practicing law in Biloxi, but Vincent's law partner, Halat, said Vincent never told him about any threats. Halat said, if there had been threats, I'm positive that Vincent would have told me. Police found that when Vincent was a defense attorney, he had received some hostile letters from a man named Bryce Hundman, who opposed some of the Sherry couple's political opinions. When Vincent was later appointed to the circuit judge bench, he bought an ad in the newspaper, sarcastically inviting Hunman to his installation reception. Only a few days after the murders, Gulf Coast businessmen contributed some money as a reward for information regarding Vincent and Margaret's deaths. In 1987, the reward amount was $50,000. Today, it would be worth about $111,000. A few days after the murders, the police had almost no leads. The townspeople of Biloxi were frustrated. In response, the Biloxi officials told the townspeople that it will take time. If it was a professional job, it will be very difficult for us to solve. A joint funeral was held for Vincent and Margaret on September 19, 1987, at Nativity Cathedral. Halad, Vincent's law partner, gave the eulogy at the funeral. It appeared to be heartfelt. During the eulogy, Halad claimed he was so close to the couple that he considered them family. He asked, Why has God deemed to take Vincent and Margaret away from us? and allow a wild animal to remain among us. Halat also shared that in the last four days before Vincent was killed, Vincent had been taking secret piano lessons. Apparently, he wanted to surprise Margaret by performing one of her favorite songs on the piano. The Clarion Ledger described the stories Halat told in his eulogy as giving attendees both pause and levity. After the funeral, Halat passed out copies of his eulogy to members of the media. The police investigation of Vincent and Margaret's murders continued to be fruitless. Several dead leads even caused excess stress to the Sherry family. After her parents were killed, the Sherry's daughter Leslie took a semester off from college. 
In January 1988, she started classes again at the University of Mississippi. Due to Vincent's veteran status, the Air Force had been sending Leslie $1,500 a month as long as she was a full-time student. In April, the payments stopped. After a month, Leslie realized she wasn't receiving checks, so she reached out to the Air Force base in Biloxi. A woman told Leslie that because she hadn't been ruled out as a suspect in her parents' murder, she couldn't receive the checks. Public Safety Director George Saxon told Leslie he wrote letters to the Air Force in October and May, stating that the Sherry children had no connection to their parents' death. However, the Air Force wanted a stronger declaration that Leslie wasn't involved. Biloxi police said they couldn't do that until they knew who killed the Sherrys. After three months of scrutiny, the Air Force decided Leslie didn't kill her parents and restarted her payments. Following the poor performance of local police, a new task force took over the Sherry's case in March 1988. They reviewed the work of the previous task force, supposedly searching for any overlooked clue. A few months later, in September, it was announced that the Sherry's son, Eric, was a suspect in the murders. Eric had told friends he would be in Biloxi the weekend before his parents were murdered. After the death of his parents, law officials stated that Eric did not register sufficient emotions after his parents were killed. They also pointed to Eric's refusal to take a lie detector test as a reason he might have been the killer. Eric confirmed that he and other family members refused to take a polygraph the week of the murders. However, Eric also said that he went back later to take the test and was told by the Harrison County Sheriff that it wouldn't be necessary. At one point, the police scheduled a polygraph test with Eric, but the police canceled it for administrative reasons. The same month police accused Eric of murdering his parents, they held a press conference to give an update. They said they had no concrete motive, no concrete suspects, and no plans to drop the investigation. At this point, the family members of Vincent and Margaret Sherry were suspicious that corruption was at play. Lynn said, A year without results is long enough. You don't know whether it is genuine ignorance or a very sloppy cover-up. In 1988 and 1989, unconfirmed rumors about the murder ran rampant through Biloxi. At one point, the public safety director of Biloxi announced that police believe the murders were likely related in some way to drug dealers. Other rumors suggested that inmates who resided in the Angola prison were involved. Angola Prison, which is actually named the Louisiana State Penitentiary, is the largest maximum security prison in the United States. Located an hour northwest of Baton Rouge, the 18,000-acre prison holds over 6,000 prisoners. It is approximately the size of New York City's Manhattan. It is known as Angola Prison because it was formerly a slave plantation and Angola was the slave's homeland. It was rumored that Vincent and Margaret were murdered because Vincent had been involved in a money scam involving Angola prison inmates. There were also rumors that Halad met with two Angola prison inmates to plan the murders of the Sherrys. Of course, Halad claimed that he had no involvement in their death. He said, Let me once again state that any suggestion I was involved in planning the murder of Vincent and Margaret Sherry is an outright lie. Regardless, the public remained suspicious of Halat. A few weeks after the Sherry murders, Halat announced that he was running for mayor of Biloxi. 
Halat won, and his term lasted from 1989 to 1993. But shortly after he took office, allegations of his own involvement in the murder of Vincent and Margaret gained speed. Mayor Halat spent the majority of his term under a cloud of suspicion and lost his re-election by a landslide. It's interesting to note that the year Halat won the election for mayor, 1989, was the same year that Margaret Sherry had been expected to make her second run for mayor. After two years of investigating, the local police had nothing. Nada. Zilch. Consequently, the FBI returned in 1989. Special Agent Keith Bell and Captain Randy Hook were now the lead investigators. They quickly found 345 phone calls between Halat's office and the Angola prison in Louisiana. The calls ranged from December 1986 until September 15, 1987. A quick reminder, the Sherrys were murdered on September 14, 1987. The FBI agents also found prison records that showed Halat had been meeting with a notorious criminal in the Angola prison around the same time the phone calls began. That criminal was none other than the head of the Dixie Mafia, Kirksey Nix Jr. Halat was his lawyer. The Dixie Mafia, also known as the Cornbread Cosa Nostra, was in its heyday in the 1980s. The New York Times describes the Dixie Mafia as a loose confederation of car thieves, burglars, contract killers, operators of prostitution and pornography rings, drug smugglers, and distributors. By loose, they meant that the mafia wasn't a tightly organized hierarchy or group of family members like the original La Cosa Nostra mafia family. While the Dixie Mafia's activity encompassed the entirety of Mississippi's Gulf Coast, their headquarters was in Biloxi, Mississippi. The FBI reported that when word got out that Biloxi, with its history of strip clubs and illicit gambling, was the safe haven, the criminals settled in. In 1983, the FBI began investigating the Dixie Mafia in the city of Biloxi and the surrounding Harrison County, located in southern Mississippi. They found that the entire Harrison County Sheriff's Office was a criminal enterprise. Special Agent Keith Bell reported that the police officers would do all manner of illegal activity for money. For the right price, Leroy Hobbs, no relation, who was the sheriff of Harrison County and his police officers, would release prisoners, safeguard drug shipments, and hide fugitives. Luckily, a few incorruptible police officers helped the FBI dismantle the criminal enterprise of the Harrison County Police. Two years before Vincent and Margaret were killed, in 1984, Sheriff Leroy Hobbs was convicted of racketeering and sentenced to 20 years in prison. However, as is apparent in the bungling of the Sherry murder cases from 1987 to 1989, Hobbs's arrest may not have been the end of the Dixie Mafia's influence. Kirksey McCord Nix Jr. was a high-ranking leader in the Dixie Mafia, especially in Louisiana and Mississippi. Some say he was the leader, but since the crime organization was more of a conglomeration of criminals than a structured bureaucracy, it's really hard to tell. In 1971, 28-year-old Nix was sentenced to life without parole after killing a New Orleans grocer. Although he had been in jail for nearly 20 years at the time of Vincent and Margaret Sherry's murder in 1987, 
Nick still maintained a strong influence in the mafia. During Nick's time in jail in 1979, Halat began representing him. The two would continue to work together as lawyer and client until 1988. At the same time that the FBI took control of the Sherry investigation, the Sherry's daughter, Lynn, hired a private investigator named Rex Armistead to look into her parents' death. The FBI and other law enforcement officers told Armistead that Nix, the leader of the Dixie Mafia that Halat had been fraternizing with, was in charge of a cash scam inside the prison. A Lonely Hearts cash scam. When you know more, you can do more. What if you could use science to discover more about your body? Find out what you need for your healthier tomorrow with Everly Well. Everly Well is digital healthcare designed for you, all at an affordable and transparent price. With over 30 at-home lab tests, you'll be able to choose the test that makes the most sense for you to get the answers you need, like the women's health test or food sensitivity test. Here's how it works. Everly Well ships products straight to you with everything needed in one package. To take your at-home lab test, simply collect your sample and use the included prepaid shipping label to mail your test back to a certified lab. Your physician-reviewed results get sent to your phone or device in just days, and you can also share the results with your primary care physician to help guide next steps. And for listeners of the show, Everly Well is offering a special discount of 20% off an at-home lab test at everlywell.com slash tcfc. That's everlywell.com slash tcfc for 20% off your next at-home lab test, everlywell.com slash tcfc. Nix's Lonely Heart scam was a complex operation. At the direction of Nix, his league of scammers would bribe corrections officers so they could use the prison telephones. They used the phones to place ads in gay publications like The Advocate. In the ads, the scammers would say they wanted a new partner to live with. Interested men reading the ads would reply to the P.O. box provided. Then, the scammers would begin one of their many strategic ploys to get money out of the interested men. One tactic the scammers used was to say that they had been imprisoned on false charges and needed money to get out. Once they were out of jail, the two men could happily be together. Another scam involved blackmailing closeted gay men. The scammers claimed that if their victims didn't send them money, they'd out them. In all of the ploys, the scammers would send racy photographs to keep their victims interested. Of course, the photos weren't of themselves. For example, Nix would say his name was Eddie Johnson and send a photo of a buff young man, which Nix was not. At this time, Nix was around 46 years old and life was creeping up on him. In fact, that's why he wanted the money. Nix hoped to acquire enough cash to buy his way out of jail. In addition to running lonely heart scams, Nix dealt drugs and committed insurance fraud. From 1986 to 1989, the lonely heart scam was wildly lucrative. Dozens of men wired money to Nix through Western Union. One man sent him around $20,000, 
which is $46,000 today. Another man took out a second mortgage on his house and sent Nick's $100,000, which is about $230,000 today. A Dixie Mafia member, Bobby Joe Fabian, who had been a part of the Lonely Heart scam as a scammer, explained to private investigator Armistead that the endeavor brought in about $5 million. However, other sources say it was only hundreds of thousands of dollars. Fabian had left the scam because he didn't trust Nix's risky behavior. Fabian pointed to a specific event where Nix's girlfriend brought Nix marijuana, even though Nix was in jail. Fabian felt Nix was too bold. He anticipated Nix's scam empire would crumble. Bobby Joe Fabian served a crucial role in uncovering Vincent and Margaret Sherry's murders. Fabian was serving time in Angola prison for kidnapping. After finding out about the Lonely Heart scam, private investigator Armistead went to Angola prison to meet with Fabian. While talking to Fabian, Armistead received enough information to begin unraveling the Sherry murders. Armistead learned via Fabian that one of Halat's employees was actually Nix's girlfriend and a scammer. That was Sherry Sharp, who was 32 years old at the time of the Sherry murders. She was posing as a legal aide at Halat's firm, but was actually a money mule for Halat and Nix's romance scam. Sharp would collect the cash from the scam and then deposit the cash into the law firm's trust account. In December 1986, Nix realized around $100,000 was missing from that trust account. Nix caught Halat and demanded a meeting. Nix and another powerful member of the Dixie Mafia, 57-year-old Mike Gillich, confronted Halat about the missing money. If you recall, Halat and Vincent had represented Gillich in their old law firm. Halat told Nix and Gillich that his old partner, Vincent Sherry, had taken the missing money. Then Halat, Gillich, and Nix began plotting Vincent's murder. While it is never confirmed that Halat was the true thief of the $100,000, Fabian would later explain that Halat knew that somebody was going to die, and better Sherry than him. While we're not certain why Margaret was killed along with Vincent, it's suspected that Gillich disliked Margaret. She had been critical of his business operations in Biloxi, where he owned a strip club called The Golden Nugget. In May 1991, Nix, Gillich, Sharp, and John Ransom were indicted on 15 counts. Ransom was the hitman initially considered for the job of killing Vincent and Margaret. An associate of Ransom's testified that Ransom was hired by Gillich to kill the Sherrys. The same associate told the courts that Ransom admitted he did kill the couple. Nix, Gillich, Sharp, and Ransom were also charged with conspiracy, murder, and wire fraud. The three were also indicted for murder for hire, including aiding and abetting. Malott wasn't indicted because all parties, except Fabian and his discussions with Armistead, claimed Halat wasn't involved. In 1991, Nix was sentenced to 15 years in prison for his role in the Sherry's deaths. Gillich was also sentenced to 15 years in prison. Ransom, the supposed hitman, was sentenced to 10 years. Sharp, Nick's girlfriend, had the shortest sentence of one year and one week in prison. Unsurprisingly, Nix continued his string of crimes while in jail. 
Meanwhile, the FBI continued to look for evidence regarding Peter Halat's involvement with the Lonely Heart scam and the Sherry murders. Finally, in 1994, three years after the trial, Gillich spoke to the FBI in exchange for a shorter sentence. He confirmed the information Bobby Joe Fabian had given Armistead. In an effort to save his own life, Halat told Nix that Vincent stole the money from the Lonely Heart scam. That's when Nix and Gillich ordered the hit on Vincent. Nix and Gillich were to split the cost of the hitman. Initially, they planned on hiring John Ransom, but Ransom was never hired. Instead, they hired Thomas Holcomb to kill Vincent for $20,000, which is about $45,000 today. Later, Halat did offer to help pay for the hit, but Gillich told him it was taken care of. In 1996, the government indicted Nix, Sharp, Halat, and Holcomb on 52 charges. Nix was charged with racketeering, conspiracy to violate the racket statute, fraud, conspiracy to commit wire fraud, money laundering, and conspiracy to obstruct justice. Sharp was charged with obstruction of justice and conspiracy to obstruct justice for false testimony that she gave in the 1991 trial. Nix, who was already serving life in prison, would now receive another sentence of life in prison, as would Holcomb. Sharp was sentenced to five years in prison. Halat was charged with obstruction of justice, conspiracy to obstruct justice based on false statements made during the 1991 investigation and trial testimony, conspiracy to violate the racketeering statute, racketeering and conspiracy to commit wire fraud. And Holcomb was charged with conspiracy to violate the racketeering statute and conspiracy to obstruct justice. It's interesting that no one was charged with conspiracy to murder in this indictment, especially Halat. He was most definitely a co-conspirator in the murders, yet he was never charged with anything murder-related. During the trial, Gillich testified that Holcomb put superglue on his fingers so he wouldn't leave any fingerprints on the gun he used to kill Vincent and Margaret. The plan was for Holmes to knock on the Sherry's door, kill them, and flee. Just as the cops suspected earlier, Vincent had answered the door for Holcomb without any suspicion. After five days of deliberation between July 11th and 16th of 1987, the jury found Nix, Sharp, and Holcomb guilty of all charges. Halat was found guilty of obstruction of justice and conspiracy to obstruct justice charges, but never anything related to the Sherry's murder. The judge asked the jury to deliberate a second time on the remaining charges against Halat. On July 17th, the jury found that Halat was also guilty of conspiracy to commit wire fraud and conspiracy to violate the racketeering statute. A few months later, on September 22, 1997, Halat was sentenced to 18 years in prison for RICO conspiracy. RICO is the Racketeer-Influenced and Corrupt Organization Act. Within that prison sentence, Halat would also serve concurrent imprisonments for obstruction of justice, conspiracy to obstruct justice, and conspiracy to commit mail fraud. While sentencing Halat, the judge admonished that if Mr. Halat had been truthful about the missing money in the beginning, the Sherrys would not be dead. After Halat was found guilty, Lynn Sherry ran into Gillich after court. Gillich said, I'm so sorry. I only thought of what I was doing for my family. I never thought of what I was doing to anybody else's. I'm sorry for what I did to your family. Lynn later said, 
He really, honestly, was as repentant as you can get. It wasn't an act. So, she forgave him. On October 20th, 2000, Halat filed a motion to get out of his convictions and sentences based on three grounds. Number one, he said that his sentence was inaccurate. The statutory maximum sentence for obstruction of justice was five years at the time he was convicted. Instead, he'd been sentenced to 10 years. The district judge agreed with him and modified his sentence. His other two grounds, that he had ineffective assistance of counsel and that his RICO conspiracy conviction and sentence violated the Supreme Court's decision on Apprendi versus New Jersey were denied. Halat's additional appeals were also denied. Today, the perpetrators of Vincent and Margaret's murders are in a variety of places. Mike Gillich received an early release because he helped with the investigation. He was released from prison in 2000. He died of cancer in April 2012 at the age of 82. Thomas Holcomb died in prison on April 8, 2005 at 52 years old. Sherry Sharp was released on June 13, 2002. John Ransom was released on November 7, 2003. Kirksey Nix Jr. is currently incarcerated in El Reno Federal Correctional Institution in Oklahoma. Peter Halott was released from a federal prison in Montgomery, Alabama in March 2012. From there, he went to a halfway house in Hattiesburg. He worked as a handyman at a Catholic church on the University of Southern Mississippi's campus. On April 24, 2013, 70-year-old Halott was released from the halfway house as a free man. As of 2017, Halat lives with his wife of many years, Sandra, in Ocean Springs, Mississippi. Technically, the Sherry murders are still open cases, since no one was ever charged with their murders. Okay, fan club members, as I conclude this episode, my one question to you is, how will you sleep tonight? Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a positive review and rating on Apple Podcast or your podcast player of choice. It really helps us out. Find us on social media. We're active on Twitter at TCFCPod, Facebook at Facebook.com slash TCFCPodcast, and Instagram at TrueCrimeFanClub.com. Also, check out our website at TrueCrimeFanClub.com. Do you have an episode suggestion? Send us an email at TCFCPod at gmail.com. This episode was researched by Haley Gray and written by Andrea Marshbank. Content editing by Brittany Martinez.